This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, open them, would you, to Psalms. The, uh, our kids and our students today are looking at Psalm 1, Psalm 100, and Psalm 110, and that's a bit challenging to try to preach all three in a cohesive whole. Uh, so I'm basically going to break every rule in the preaching playbook today and uh, preach two sermons in one. So I hope you're comfortable. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, we're going to do two for one today. We're going to go two for one. Uh, I'm going to look at Psalm 1 today, and then I'm going to look at the topic of singing, uh, because the Psalms themselves are a songbook, so it's appropriate time to think about this together. So we're going to look at Psalm 1 and the topic of meditation, and we're going to look at the Psalms, kind of a sweeping view of, of them and the topic of singing. Psalm 1, let me read this and we'll consider it together. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So the first part here, we're going to look at meditation. Here's what we're going to consider together. We're going to look at the definition of it, the method, the timing, and the results. Okay? Topic of meditation, here are four aspects to meditation from Psalm 1. We're going to look at the definition, the method, the timing, and the results. Okay, first, definition. Meditation does not involve the lotus position. This is not transcendental meditation endorsed by the Beatles back in the 60s. To meditate means to ponder, to reflect, to contemplate, to think about something. Literally, it means to think about something out loud to talk to yourself as a way of thinking about something. You all know what I'm talking about. You've been walking around your house and your kids are saying, who are you talking to? (laughs) It's allowing something to get deep. It's allowing something to get deep. So when you marinate a piece of meat, what do you do to it? You put it in a bag, you put it in a container, you pour marinade over it, you let it sit there undisturbed, surrounded by the same liquid hour after hour. What happens? The meat gets influenced by the marinade. The meat gets influenced by the marinade. That's meditation. Now, of course, meditation that's talked about here is very specific. It's not just meditation on anything. It's meditation on the law of the Lord. The most common understanding of law is the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch or the Torah. First five books was known as the law. And some, at the time Psalm 1 was written, that was probably the extent of their Bibles. So when we're instructed to meditate on the law, we are in effect instructed to meditate on the Bible. But the word law also tells us something about the mindset we're to have when we approach it. 
It's interesting, there's a place in John 10 where Jesus quotes from the Psalms, he quotes from Psalm 82, verse six, and he calls it law. In other places, Jesus would separate the law from the Psalms, and he would list them separately. A number of commentators have looked at that and said, Jesus must be pointing at more than just a body of literature, but a mindset that we use to approach it. It's viewing the scriptures as authoritative. So it's not just the specific body of literature we're to meditate on, it's also saying something about how we are to approach that literature. So let me put it this way. The scriptures will never move from being words on a page to a vehicle for an encounter with the living God without viewing every phrase as authoritative. If the Bible is just words on a page, you will never get close to God. I will tell you that now. If it's just words on a page, you will never, ever, ever get close to God. You'll never find the blessed life that the psalmist talks about here. For you, the Bible has to be the very words of God. You have to see the Bible as God's loving, sacrificial, laborious act of communicating with you in a language you can understand. That's the definition. Second, the method. Martin Luther uh, has provided a wonderful little piece of instruction that teaches us how to meditate on Scripture. And I think it's the best beginner's guide to meditation there is. It's, it's called A Simple Way to Pray, and you can find it free online. Uh, it, it was Luther uh, writing a letter to his barber who had become a Christian. The barber wanted to know how he reads and prays and how, how does he do this Christian thing now that he was one. And Luther penned a letter, a simple way to pray, and the basic structure of it takes the form of an acrostic, tax, T-A-C-S, teaching, adoration, confession, supplication. So the basic structure of a simple way to pray, Luther teaching this new believer how to engage with the scriptures in a prayerful way, in other words, how to do meditation, is teaching, adoration, confession, supplication. Very quickly, teaching. What is the teaching of the particular passage of Scripture you want to meditate on? Okay, so what, what is the text saying? What does it mean? You take some time to, to work through that, to think through that, and then you move into prayer. So it's marrying the two. It's marrying some light Bible study with prayer, adoration. What about God is said in this passage, not just generally, but the passage that's in front of you? What about God is said in this passage that begs us to praise him? Based on the teaching in the passage, what should I praise God for? Confession, how do I fail to realize this teaching in my life? What wrong behavior or harmful emotions result when I forget this teaching? And S is supplication. What can I ask God for based on this text? So that was the general way that Luther was teaching this new believer how to do both uh, Bible study and prayer. It's a fantastic example of how to do meditation. T-A-C-S. That's the method. Third, the timing. Psalmist says we're to meditate on God's word day and night. It doesn't mean... You quit your job, you ignore your kids, but I realize some of you really want to in order to go spend some time by yourself in the scriptures. Day and night is simply a way for the psalmist to encourage meditation on scripture to be done in a disciplined way. 
Okay, there's a consistent immersion in it. It's not haphazard. It's not when I get time to do it. It's not when I feel like doing it. It's penciled into my schedule. And it's protected at high cost. So keep in mind the chain of events. It's not just meditation. It's meditation on God's word. It's not just meditation on God's word. It's meditation on God's word in a disciplined and consistent manner. Fourth, the results. There's three of them in the text. The first is stability. The person who meditates on God's word in a disciplined manner is stable, like a tree planted by streams of water. So compare the stability of a tree planted by streams of water with the stability of chaff, which is what the psalmist is doing. That's the contrast in the text. What is chaff? Well, wheat was harvested in long stocks. Uh, Not all of it was usable, and so they went through two processes. The first is called threshing. Take a look at this. This is threshing. Take the long stocks and you would beat it to help loosen the grain from the outer husk known as the chaff. This is threshing. The second process was winnowing. Farmers would take the pitchforks or some kind of tool and they would throw it into the air again and again and again and again. And the wind would blow away the lighter chaff and the heavier grain would fall safely to the ground. Chaff was the paper-thin outer shell to the grain. This is the imagery the psalmist is using. So the person who does not meditate on Scripture in a consistent and disciplined manner is like chaff at the mercy of wherever the wind may be blowing. In other words, that person is unstable, prone to adversity, prone to getting knocked over through suffering or temptation. But the person who meditates on Scripture becomes like a tree planted by streams of water. In other words, the planted tree can handle anything. No matter what the circumstances may be, the tree survives, it lives on, it endures. There may be a raging storm, but the tree is planted, it's stable. The person who's like a tree planted by streams of water can handle suffering. The person who is like a tree planted by streams of water can handle adversity. They can handle temptation. Now, they may become tearful, they may become tired, but they always make it. They always make it. First is stability. Second, fruitfulness. Meditation also makes us fruitful. Meditation is like a tree. So this is the imagery. Let's pick it up again. Tree sending its roots out to the nearby stream. Tree planted by streams of water. So when we meditate on Scripture, we are sending our roots out to the nearby stream. Please note, the tree's not a pipe. It's not water in one end, water out the other. It's water in one end, fruit out the other. Water in one end, fruit out the other. This is why meditation is much more than study. Meditation goes beyond study. If all you're doing is sending your roots out to the stream and then studying the water's composition, separating the hydrogen and oxygen molecules, looking for minerals, if that's all you're doing, you're wasting the water. It's water in one end, fruit out the other. Meditation is making the word flesh. It's making the teaching a reality. It's making the teaching a reality cognitively, volitionally, emotionally. So cognitively and volitionally, meditation means sitting there and saying, okay, if that passage is true, 
what would that look like in my life? That passage is true, what would that look like in my life? If that passage is true, what would that look like in my marriage? If that passage is true, what would it look like in my singleness, in my relationships at work? See, you know you're meditating on Scripture if you see fruit in your life. That's when you know you're meditating on Scripture. You're becoming humbler, more hospitable, more evangelistic, more patient, kinder, gentler. Meditation is water in one end, fruit out the other. Meditation is taking God's word and making it a reality in your life. So you no longer just think about it intellectually. You taste it. You feel it. And it bears fruit in all aspects of your life, your thoughts, your actions, your words, and yes, even your feelings. Now, before you start thinking, well, you know, I'll never get there. I'm not a spiritual giant. I'll never get there. Keep in mind, this isn't super fruit. It's not like this tree is producing fruit year-round. The tree produces fruit in season. In other words, the tree goes through seasons of fruitlessness, where there isn't any fruit, but that doesn't mean it's dead. Even though it may not be producing fruit, it's getting stronger. It's sending its roots out deeper. Even during fruitless seasons, it doesn't stop drawing water from the stream. Third is intimate worship and prayer. Third result of meditation is intimate worship and prayer. This is very interesting, and I I get this from the placement of Psalm 1 in proximity to the rest of the Psalms. Okay? Follow me here and walk with me through this here. The Psalms is a giant prayer and song book. It's filled with prayers and songs that call each other to worship, and it calls on us to address God directly. Psalm 1 isn't either of those. Psalm 1 is not a prayer addressing God directly, nor is it a song that calls us to praise God. Psalm 1 is a teaching psalm. And we've been noting that it teaches on the importance of meditating on God's Word. So the Psalms, in case you didn't know, the Psalms were not haphazardly thrown together. They were not just randomly thrown together in whatever order the psalmist felt like when they woke up that morning. They are deliberately ordered. Deliberately ordered. So why is a psalm about meditating on God's word the first? Imagine having a conversation with someone. You might do that after the service is done. In this room, out in the lobby, you might have a conversation. Question, who determines the subject matter for the conversation? The person who speaks first. Yes? Yes. The person who speaks first has quite a bit of power over where the conversation goes. Meditation Let's God start the conversation. Psalm 1 is about meditating on God's word. Meditation lets God establish the subject matter. It lets him set the tone. And the rest of the book is all about fostering an intimate and deep times of, of worship and prayer and communion with God. 
But in order to get there, you've got to go through Psalm 1 first. So in other words, one of the things it's teaching us is don't just start with your prayer list. Let God speak first. Listening to God before talking to God takes you deeper. It makes you grow faster. Meditation is answering prayer. God says something, you think about it, you ponder it, you contemplate over it, you reflect on it, and then you pray his speech up and into you. So when we do this, the Psalms promise we will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Stable, fruitful, experiencing deep and intimate times of worship and prayer. In fact, meditation should fuel our next topic, and that's singing. You've heard me say it before. I want ABC, I want our congregation to be the singingest congregation in the Milwaukee metro area. I want our congregation to be the singingest. I made that up. I couldn't find it anywhere. Singingest congregation in the Milwaukee metro area. So let me explain. Here are the three things we're going to look at. We are created to sing, commanded to sing, and compelled to sing. Okay? We are created to sing, commanded to sing, compelled to sing. And for the record, when I talk about singing here, I am not talking about you joining Josh Groban on your way to work in the morning, singing whatever. For the record, every mention of singing is a mention to the community of faith or some subset of it gathered together to ascribe praise to God. That's what I mean by singing when I talk about it uh, in this, uh, uh, this context. So we are created to sing first. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Did you know that around the 12-week mark, the vocal cords of a baby growing in the womb are in place and working? The 12-week mark? Singing is not an accidental byproduct of God giving us the ability to speak. Singing is not the accidental byproduct of God giving us the ability to speak. God created us to sing. Physically speaking, medically speaking, anatomically speaking, if you have vocal cords, you can sing. You've been fearfully and wonderfully made to sing. Now, immediately, I know someone's going to say, well, I can't sing. (laughs) If by this you mean the sound you hearing coming out of your mouth isn't what you were hoping for, I want to encourage you. God is less concerned with what you sound like than he is with your integrity. And as we're going to see, singing is an integrity issue, not a tunefulness issue. Singing is an integrity issue, not a tunefulness issue. As Keith, our worship director, said, God has auto-tune. Keith and Kristen Getty, uh, writing on this topic, said this, don't sing primarily because you love to sing or keep quiet because you do not. Sing because you love who made you and formed you. 
Don't sing primarily because you love to sing or keep quiet because you do not. Sing because you love who made you and formed you. We're created to sing. Second, we're commanded to sing. Psalm 149, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of his faithful people. This is a command to sing. This is not a suggestion. Grammatical form is imperative. Imperative. It's a command. It's a command to sing the praises of the Lord in the gathering of God's people. Sounds like us in this room, doesn't it? There are more than 400 references to singing in the Bible. 400. And there are at least 50 direct commands to sing. At least 50 direct commands to sing. I know you can connect the dots here, but just in case, not to sing is to disregard a direct command from God. That's called disobedience. Not to sing is to disobey. Let me have a brief sidebar here. God's commands are not in the Bible to ruin your fun. God's commands are not in the Bible to ruin your fun. God's commands are always for our good. So by refusing to sing, you're actually refusing something God says is for your good. Refusing to sing will always be spiritually detrimental to you. Always. There's a growing trend in American churches today of people arriving substantially late to church with the expressed purpose of skipping the singing time because it's just the singing time. I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they haven't ever realized what God has said about singing. Maybe they've never realized God has created them to sing or that he's commanded us to sing for our spiritual good. But if you're one of those who deliberately arrives late in order to skip the singing time, please make note. God has created and commanded you to sing for your spiritual good. He's created you, commanded you to sing in the congregation, in the the assembly of his faithful people for your spiritual good. Refusing something God says is good for you never turns out well. So if this doesn't convince you, let me offer one more thought. Matthew 26, verse 30. After they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Probably in our devotional time, We breeze right through that. And we don't slow down. We just keep on moving. This is where slowing down in our times of scripture reading would be greatly beneficial for us. Who is they? Well, this is the verse that follows the scene in the upper room. The Last Supper after they had partaken of the bread and the wine, they sang a hymn. Who's included in the day? Jesus Christ. Does it make a difference to you knowing your Savior, the one who left his throne in heaven 
came to earth to live and die for you. Does it make a difference knowing Jesus Christ sang? Does it make a difference to you knowing that Jesus was a singing Savior? Does that make a difference to you? Third, we're compelled to sing. There are around a dozen NFL teams that have a fight song that is played and sung every time the team scores a touchdown. My team, the Minnesota Vikings, I'll give you a moment to boo, is among the dozen teams that has a fight song. And I'm a, actually, you know what? I'm not ashamed at all to admit. I have sung their fight song. (laughs) Skull Vikings. Skull Vikings. S-K-O-L, Skull Vikings. I have sung it loud while attending a game. And in so doing, I witnessed 60,000 fans singing. What was very interesting about this is that they weren't mouthing the words. They were singing with gusto. And it was prompted by something. (laughs) Praise is prompted by the revelation of something glorious. And that's not true, just true of a football game. It's true throughout all human experience. It's true in the Bible. Two biblical examples where this happened, where praise was prompted by the revelation of something glorious. Exodus 15, there's a jubilant time of singing after God frees the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. The praise that happens in Exodus 15 is epic. There's singing, there's dancing, there's tambourines, it's jubilant. And it was not done at all begrudgingly. It was done with enjoyment. It was as if God's rescue of his people was meant to come to a climax in singing. See, being freed from slavery compelled them to sing. Same kind of thing occurs in Judges 4 and 5. God frees Israel after 20 years of oppression at the hands of a Canaanite warlord. And the same kind of thing happens there, a jubilant time of singing, a jubilant time of of celebration. Singing completed the joy of the victory. Being rescued from oppression compelled them to sing. See, it it goes against the way God made us. It goes against the way God made us to keep quiet about something that delights us. Think about that in your own experience. It goes against the way God made us to keep quiet about something that delights us. Alistair Begg pastors a church in the Cleveland area. He's spoken of how he can tell. He's been very bold about this. He, has, he can tell when someone who was on the sidelines of faith has embraced it by seeing them now with full eyes and fully engaged in the singing. Why? It goes against the way God made us to keep quiet about something that delights us. If we're quiet, one must ask the question, to what degree has this thing delighted them? 
C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, I think we delight to praise. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. Praise or singing and enjoyment, they're tied together. They're tied together. We see it in football stadiums. We see that in Exodus and Judges. Praising or singing about something we enjoy completes the enjoyment. It's as if, it's if our, our enjoyment of that thing hasn't reached full maturity until we praise it. Our enjoyment of that thing has not reached full maturity until we praise it. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. One of the most well-known choirs in the world, a very talented choir. Calvin Hunt was a member of the choir. Calvin's life previously had been destroyed by crack cocaine. He'd been living on the streets, estranged from his family. And then one day he stumbled into Brooklyn Tabernacle Church. On that day, on that day, he stumbled into church. He heard the gospel and he committed his life to Christ. And his story was captured in a video. And the key moment of his story was the one that showed him singing with the choir. His face shining, his voice bursting with lyrics that say there is a blood, a cleansing blood that flows from Calvary. And in this blood, there's a saving power for it washes white and makes me clean. I'm clean, I'm clean. I've been washed in his blood. What's so interesting to me about Calvin's story is that he never needed to be told to sing. He never needed to be told to sing. Singing gives voice to a heart that deeply knows the gospel of grace. It overflows out of a heart captivated by the gospel. We've been created to sing, commanded to sing, compelled to sing. Just one more quick note. Meditation and singing are contained within the same book. Meditation and singing are bound together in the same book. Don't ever let one exist without the other. Don't ever let one exist without the other. They're inseparably bound together. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing. God, thank you that your word starts the conversation. You've told us so much about yourself. You've demonstrated through centuries of activity the kind of God you are. And I pray that you'd help us get neck deep in your word. I pray the intended effects of that would come to fruition in our lives. That we would be fruitful people, humble, generous, kind, patient. That we would be stable people, able to endure the challenges that shake our faith. 
and that we will be people who enjoy intimacy with you. And I also pray, God, that we would be a singing people. Singing because we've been created, commanded, and compelled to sing. Singing people because of our enjoyment of you. Singing as an expression of our delight in what you've done for us. So as one congregation among many, we declare your worth to the world. And we do that now with joy and thanksgiving in Christ's name. Amen.